<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win best. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our weekend entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we are grabbing a slice of Southern Gothic pie, but is it sweet or laced with poison? If our feature film this week is to be believed, it's pretty on the outside and rotten in its core. This week's film is The Devil All the Time directed by Antonio Campos and based on the novel of the same name by Donald Ray Pollock. It stars Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, Mia Wasikowska, Sebastian Stan, Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, Haley Bennett, and dear sweet Eliza Scanlon from Little Women. Set in rural Appalachia and spanning from the 40s through to the 60s, The Devil All the Time follows the interconnecting lives of its deeply flawed main characters, each contending with their own inner demons or burdened by the weight of intergenerational trauma. This film asks the question, can we go down the path of righteousness or are we forced to fight the devil all the time? First impression, Helen. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say it's very clear you haven't seen Sharp Objects because you would not (laughs) introduce Eliza Scanlon that way if you had. (laughs) Oh, no, I have. Oh, shoot. I have not seen that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah she is lovely is so so sweet and gentle in little women and then you watch sharp objects and you're like oh hell <laughs> oh and now i'm desperate to watch it okay first impression for me this movie has creepy vibes and there's something that happens in the first five minutes that brought me right back to the first time i watched seven mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> yeah first impressions for me this film is instantly emulating there will be blood the ballad of mm. buster scruggs and frailty i'm getting the feeling this one may struggle to find its own identity mm. you thought that right away did you <laughs> <laughs> yeah right off the bat very perceptive <laughs> especially the ballad of buster scruggs which was also a netflix film <laughs> what did you not get the, those vibes well, you know, it just might not have been my actual very first impression, but it's okay. My first impression is that our introduction to this film is through voiceover. Someone's going to be the narrator of this film. But right away, I like the man's voice and his like casual southern drawl. It kind of reminds me of the Green Mile opening, actually. And he mentions a town called Knock'em Stiff. And I was like, okay, that's a fantastic movie town name. <laughs> um, so I really liked his voice and... I like the score at this bit was subtle, but it kind of Mm. quickly goes from pleasant to almost threatening really quickly. And Mm -hmm. this is all before I had even seen a single frame of footage of this film. And I was like, okay, I'm on board. I'm here so far. Okay, well, do we want to start with storytelling? Mm -hmm. Okay, I will say, since you've already brought it up, Edison, this does have voiceover narration, which I tend to not like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I find it to typically be lazy filmmaking or lazy storytelling in my opinion that sort of informed my opinion of the storytelling of this film because to me the use of the voiceover is because we have 
these storylines that bounce around in time, storylines from a bunch of different characters that are weaved together, but you're not entirely sure how. In my mind, the voiceover was used to make sense of all of that, but it completely diminished, I think, the power of the story for me personally. Basically, the storytelling of this film, I I just feel like the novel is probably way more engrossing than the movie. Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting. The author of the book that this film is based on is actually the man who does the voiceover through yeah. the film. And he had never read anything before, like on mm-hmm. on recording or in film. And I thought that was really cool. But I agree with you about the voiceover. I liked it at the beginning because I really like his voice. But for that to only be the one kind of consistent warm thread through the whole film, I actually did find a bit jarring after a while. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the narration, the narration felt completely out of place (laughs) for me. Something like that works in a film like a Coen Brothers films because the tone is quite balanced in those films for the entirety of the film, Mm. where the tone in this, it's very clear as being very dark and very bleak Mm -hmm. there aren't elements of comedy that are running deeply under the surface of this film there's no satirical elements really either i Mm. found it wait you don't think that there's a lot of comedy in this film (laughs) there's zero comedy (laughs) in this film and i found it to be pretty one note in terms of tone so that narration it didn't fit and i don't know if maybe that was the author's vision maybe clashing with the director's vision in some way but those two things were not working together well to say that at the very beginning it reminded me of the green mile (laughs) for this film to be Mm. what happens next is like quite a difference yeah i've actually been quite ambivalent towards this director's work i've watched Mm. after school from 2008 a a while back this was uh, ezra miller's first feature film and yeah how was that well it was shot very uniquely and and it's interesting but it's a bit underwhelming and Helen, you and I saw another movie Antonio Campos did called Christine. Christine, yeah. With Rebecca Hall at TIFF. And that too wasn't really a bad film, but it was just a bit underwhelming. And and also like kind of pounding you over the head with how bleak and dark and depressing it is. Yeah, I find <laughs> that they, his films tend to lack a balance. And mm. my biggest problem with the devil all the time was a lack of balance as well and that this film just ended up being a bit of a non-event yeah I feel the same way and the one thing I did write down was that the title is appropriate seeing as not a single good thing happens to a single human being in this film right yeah I have to agree with that it was relentlessly bleak and yeah you would get moments where you thought okay maybe this has to we have to have a glimmer of hope here mm-hmm. but they all turn to the devil that's where it yeah. didn't work for me even Lenore right the mm-hmm. the dear sweet sister that's Eliza's character um, who's so pure and so wonderful, and then she kills herself. Even that brief pause, like they give us a, a hope. Oh, yeah. oh no, she changed her mind. And I thought, okay, finally. Oh no, she slips on the bucket and does it I anyway. Know. <laughs> I like, know, it's just, why? it hits you over the head the whole time. Yeah, the evil wasn't really balanced with any good. Everyone in this film leaned towards the dark side of religion and the dark side of our hearts, yeah. and it wasn't really counterbalanced with anything. And any of the characters that had any sort of guiding moral light died pretty quickly. 
Oh, big this. time. Yeah, and absolutely. it also it never really felt like anyone was really wrestling with their demons except mm. Tom Holland at moments. But mm-hmm. yeah, the film is called The Devil All the Time and it's insinuating that these characters are fighting the devil within all the time. They're fighting mm-hmm. with those urges and their inner demons and their tendency to lean towards violence. But it mm-hmm. seems like the devil always wins. So yes. it didn't really feel like anyone was wrestling with it enough. It would have been nice to kind of see that conflict in their 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 psyche. And I can see that this film is trying to have a conversation as well about America's relationship to like violence and religion and how it intersects with poverty. And I get that. It's just that. And, and I'm happy. Like, I'm not a fan of religion. Mm. But for it to just be so completely evil entirely is it goes back to that imbalance thing like i just think Mm -hmm. that there were ways that you could have had this conversation a little bit more uh thoroughly yeah it's like how i i this is reminding me of our conversation about joker and how joker was just like bad after bad after bad and there's no reprieve and he had no yeah like moral dilemma that he had to choose between it was just like all these bad things are going to happen to you and now you're a bad person right and that's not satisfying as as an audience member in my opinion like I don't care to see that. That's not interesting. So we also have to think about the genre that this film is. It's Southern Gothic, but it's technically set in Ohio. So it's being considered a Midwestern Gothic. Right. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Southern Gothic films is one of the main ingredients for a Southern Gothic film is conflicting morals. But mm. it ha- it has to be really present. And Antonio Campos loves Southern Gothic films. He also really loves the films of Igmar Bergman, which mm. I read, which I appreciate a lot. But the thing about those films is they're generally about characters that are really struggling with their faith and their relationship with God. And mm-hmm. I just found that as much as he seemed to want to show this, it didn't quite come through as a duality. Mm-hmm. I agree, because we weren't actually seeing the benefit that having a positive relationship with God might have with exactly. these characters. Yeah, yeah. I will say it was very economical storytelling in the sense that there's so many different characters and stories, storylines, it could be a bit unwieldy he just gave us the bullet points really we didn't really get to linger long in any one moment and i will say i'm not saying that that's necessarily a strength of the film i actually think that that probably was a disservice to like character development and things like that but i thought it was smart filmmaking in some ways in terms of working with all of these different stories see i disagree with that though because i that's where i feel like the narration that's what the narration did like we meet uh, Mia Wasikowska's character Helen and then we're told and she was found dead buried in the woods seven years later like you're just told all of these things because you don't have time to develop all these character backstories and how they all weave together which is why I think that the novel is probably much better because you mm-hmm. have the time to digest all of that information and actually experience it versus having just someone tell it to you in exposition form you know Yeah. Why don't we get into performances? Because there are a lot to cover here. Why don't we start with Tom Holland, who's kind of our lead here. 
I really like Tom Holland in this. I mean, I like Tom Holland in general. I love, you know, I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with the Marvel films. I love Spider-Man. I think he's the best Spider-Man. So I like have a genuine affection for him and for that actor. He just seems like a lovely person. So I really wanted to root for him. And I think that he has this ability to kind of innately convey goodness, yeah. which lets you kind of get behind his actions a lot of the time throughout this film Mm -hmm. he i read an interview with him where he expressed why he was taking this on he he like reached out to his agent years before after watching this director's work and said like i like what he's done he's always looking Mm -hmm. to work with new directors that are going to try and challenge him with a different thing so he just wants to explore and i thought it was like i thought he was really great in this he was a solid anchor i really liked harry melling who played roy oh fuck who we see in the very beginning and to what you've pointed out Sinclair he reminded me so much of Paul Dano in There Will Be Blood yeah do you know that this is Dudley from Harry Potter yes isn't that amazing the fuck I like I was like who is this guy he has such an interesting unique look and I was like really enjoying his performance and I looked him up I'm like oh my god it's Dudley (laughs) I I thought his performance was very compelling okay did you know that the goddamn spider scene is real. Yes, I did. And that I was thinking makes about me you, Edison. want to die. That makes me want to literally die. I cannot. I did not know that while watching this film, thankfully, or I would have had to pause and leave the room. I don't know. I don't know. I would not have made it through it. Wow. You know what? It's weird because the, the spiders to me actually looked fake. So I think they must have seen some read, of them. When I read that they I were think, real, I was like, really? Like, <laughs> I think he probably put some spiders on his face, but like they CGI'd more because they definitely <laughs> looks fake. But yeah, I was thinking about you, Edison. I was like, oh, this is going to freak Edison out so much. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I agree. He was terrifying and awesome. He was actually mm-hmm. really fa- fantastic. Yeah, I liked him a lot. And Riley Keough, who plays Sandy, I had problems with her character. But I liked her performance, and I have really, really liked her ever since I watched her in The Girlfriend Experience. Mm-hmm. But her character, in my opinion, I don't understand why she went along with her psycho boyfriend. Like, there's nothing to indicate that she's a psychopath, but she, like, decides to, like, murder all these men with him. Well, and, yeah, like, they were this- just underwritten. I love Eliza Scanlon. Eliza Scanlon was so good in Sharp Objects, and everything oh God, I've so seen good. her in since has been incredibly underwritten, and she's way more talented than the roles she's getting uh, yeah. in some of these films. She does have another movie coming out called Baby Teeth, which I want to see, which she stars in. But yeah, I felt a, I, a lot of the female characters were quite underwritten in this. And and they all die, literally every single one. <laughs> Spoiler, they all die. (laughs) I actually think the performances in this were one of the stronger elements. For sure. Yeah, they're what held it together. I will also say that the dialogue itself was often pretty strong. Mm-hmm. The the storytelling and such, not so much. But the dialogue, there were some real great moments of dialogue and some really great lines. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, think about Robert Pattinson, that delusions oh. sermon. Yeah. That, to me, was brilliant. He just chewed the scenery with this wild mm-hmm. accent, but mm-hmm. not in a way that felt at all overacty or like... No me. It was just like real. He's so good. I, I would watch Robert Pattinson do literally anything. I think he's so amazing. 
He plays a really convincing bad guy. Yes. He's taken on these roles and he's very convincing. He has these pointed features. features. Sharp features. Mm. Yeah. Uh, That there's just something sinister going on behind Yeah. And like cat (laughs) eyes and cats are evil as we all know. And (laughs) it's... I think that it's going to make him a really compelling Batman, actually, having Mm -hmm. that kind of inner darkness that you can sense, Mm -hmm. because that'll be really good for that character. Yeah. Yeah. But I also love that both Batman and Spider-Man were in this film. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. And Pennywise. (laughs) Yeah, and Pennywise. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do we have some technical things we'd like to point out? Well, it's shot on film. Oh, that's cool. So I didn't know that. It's shot on 35 millimeter film. I, I thought it captured that Southern Gothic vibe really well. There's a lot I of um, a lot of natural light in this, mm-hmm. which there's so many religious themes. And you would think that maybe the film would be a lot more uh, dark in tone, mm-hmm. but it's actually a lot more earthy than expected right. with a lot of natural light coming in. I think that has a lot to do with there's, you know, a lot of like church scenes. So I thought that was really interesting considering how bleak the film actually is bleak and violent that it had kind of this like natural look to it Mm -hmm. yeah i also thought that the shots the cinematography was actually really beautiful in this there were some like long sweeping shots with just beautiful lighting and the landscape that part of the country we've seen represented in films like winter's bone and a bunch mm-hmm. of others and it's usually like dark and bleak this is also incredibly dark and bleak but i'm glad that they kind of it's also a scenery wise a really beautiful part of the country and i'm glad that the film yeah. kind of caught that or parts of mm-hmm. that as well yeah i said that i loved the atmosphere of this movie mm-hmm. uh which is you know it is ironic considering how dark the plot is the costuming and the setting and the old cars mm-hmm. like i just like couldn't stop watching that history okay so uh what's our last word on the devil all the time uh the devil all the time has some good performances i feel like this is a story i've seen before and i imagine the book is more compelling mm-hmm. yeah i'll echo that i'll say that for me the devil all the time is worth a watch just for the performances there's it's a mm-hmm. really great cast and a lot of them do compelling work here but the film itself is only just okay I don't think it's terrible, but I think it's only just okay. Yeah, last word for me. I found this film story to be a bit underwhelming and its messaging to be very one-sided, but the performances are worth seeing, especially if you're a fan of Tom Holland or Robert Pattinson, but don't expect to walk away with much more. Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch a film that fits a particular theme. This week's theme is Angels and Demons. This is our week in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Sinclair, why don't you go first? You never go first. No, Helen always goes first. Okay, we'll just stick to it. All right, Helen. <laughs> Helen, what did you I pick? don't always go first, but I do want to go first this week. <laughs> okay, so I was having a little bit of trouble picking my film for Aoi. Um, I really, truly, I, I wanted to watch a scary movie because it's October getting into Halloween, getting into the spooky season. Um, You can always tell when Helen likes her film because you get a particular kind of like energy and sass and dance to your voice. I know I'm actually getting hot. I have to take my sweater off (laughs) too excited. (sighs) Okay. I watched a movie from 1997 directed by Danny Boyle called a life less ordinary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you guys seen this movie? Yeah. 
Yeah. Cameron <laughs> Diaz. So fucking weird. Yes. <laughs> um, I had yes, I had never heard of this movie before. It popped up when I was searching movies that had angels in them. I was like, what is this strange movie from the late 90s that was directed by Danny Boyle? What is this? It was very like junior high popular, I, yeah. if I recall correctly, when yeah, I was totally. when I was of that age. Yeah. It is a weird movie. Okay, so Starring Ewan McGregor, Cameron Diaz, Holly Hunter, Delroy Lindo, and some interesting performances by Tony Shalhoub and Stanley Tucci. How does one describe this movie? Okay, I'm going to start with the more normal plot because there are (laughs) two plots to this movie. This is basically two movies. So Ewan McGregor plays Robert, a low-level employee for a very rich businessman played by Ian Holm. He gets fired on the same day his girlfriend breaks up with him. So all full of piss and vinegar, he storms into Rich Man's office to demand his job back, but inadvertently ends up kidnapping his daughter Celine played by Cameron Diaz um, and they end up going on this haphazard slapsticky getaway ransom escapade and fall in love at the end okay so that's like the normal <laughs> version of this movie <laughs> then we have this other movie that's happening where Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo are two angels yes a- Apparently, God is not happy that people are getting divorced and breaking up. So Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo, whose angel names are O'Reilly and Jackson, are sent to Earth with the task of making sure that Robert and Celine are up together or else they'll be banished back to Earth with all the dumb humans. Mm-hmm. This movie is so strange. Like, so, so strange. Such a mishmash. The best way I can describe this movie is if two movies had a car crash and the parts of the cars got mangled together that's what this movie would become Mm -hmm. it's totally a complete mess just plot wise and storyline i'm just like who who came up with these strange strange (laughs) ideas the thing about it though is that it is so zany and strange that there's actually moments in it that are really great I would be like, this movie sucks so much. And then something would happen. I'd be like, oh, my God, I love this movie now. And then five minutes later, I was like, this movie's so fucking stupid. I hate it. Mm -hmm. So I went back and forth a lot about uh, my opinion on it. With it being Danny Boyle, too, there's a lot of there's actually some really beautiful shots in it. And like cinematically, it there's some really stunning moments. Mm -hmm. Cameron Diaz and Ewan McGregor as a couple. eh, I wasn't super convinced on their chemistry, to be honest. I mean, Cameron Diaz, this is the same year as There's Something About Mary and around the same time as My Best Friend's Wedding and all of that. Yeah. But her character is so strange and it's not well suited to her, in my opinion. And she's 25, but she has like this 45-year-old woman's haircut in it the whole time. And it just looks so bad. Yeah. Well, that's that's <laughs> it's the 90s. So off, it's so off-putting. I'm like, why do you look like that? Yeah. <laughs> This movie's bizarre, strange, never heard of it before. Kind of happy I watched it because it was so weird. I don't know if I would recommend it, but I wouldn't necessarily not recommend it. So (laughs) that was my week in entertainment. (laughs) Oh my God, amazing. Uh, Okay, so I also was going back and forth between which films to do this week. Initially, I wanted to watch Stigmata with Patricia Arquette and Gabriel Byrne. (laughs) <laughs> yes, which is from like 1999. And yes. just because honestly, because I remember watching it at my grandparents' house on VHS that we'd rented. And it's the only film in my entire life up until this day, I think, where I watched it and then I immediately rewound to the beginning and watched it again. Oh, and have wow. never, have never, ever watched <laughs> it again since. 
And the reason why I chose not to is because I very quickly looked it up and saw that the reviews were bad. And I was like, oh, I do not want to taint my memory. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Then I thought, no, I'll watch Drag Me to Hell because I'm ashamed I haven't seen it yet. And I know it'll be I good. almost watched Drag Me to Hell. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's but fun. That's good. It's good. It's fun. supposed to be good. But then I was talking to my boyfriend and he told me and he told me I had to watch The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which he had seen and knew would scare me and wanted to watch with me. No doubt just to laugh at my terror, which he gleefully <laughs> did, I might add. Did you watch it? Is this third one? Are you finally going to talk about one or what? Yes. The Exorcism of Emily Rose from 2005 was my film this week. Directed by Scott Derrickson, this film is based on the true story of sweet, religious, innocent Emily Rose, played by Jennifer Carpenter, who gets possessed by a demon, well, six demons, and dies during the exorcism performed by her family priest in an attempt to save her. The movie incorporates all of that content, but is actually framed as a courtroom drama of sorts Hmm. instead. Interesting. Yeah, kind of like what you were saying, Helen, and yours, where it's like two films happening at the same time. So in this courtroom drama movie, Laura Linney is the lawyer sent to defend Tom Wilkinson, who's the priest. As she learns Emily's story from Father Moore, we get the horror part of this film through flashbacks. So I will say that it's a tricky thing to balance these two wildly different tones of film. But to this movie's credit, I'd say it does a fairly good job. And part of why is because the demon starts to kind of creep in on Laura Laura Linney's character as well in the present. Just in little things like her waking up and it's the devil's hour, 3 a.m. And Mm. the clocks have stopped and her watch has stopped. And she gets up to go to the kitchen and the lights don't work and there's a weird noise. And, Ooh, you know, creepy. subtle things and whatever. It is creepy. I was terrified. But it's <laughs> never really in a way where she actually feels, like, endangered. And I do kind of wish that the film had gone there. Mm. Right. But I will say that Jennifer Carpenter is actually fantastic as a possessed Emily. Her physicality she, is She's really terrifying. good in it. Yeah. She's so she's good. In it. And this one is one of the better ones of all the exorcisms of movies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's great. She is, she's got very unique features. She can be very pretty, but yes, she can also kind of morph and warp her face to look possessed in a way that's really harrowing. The possession itself, too, is like a terrifying scene. It's like she's being raped by this invisible force. It's actually really difficult to watch. And the way that she like flies off the bed after and just starts sobbing fully broken is like wrenching. So in conclusion, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, I think it could be a bit of a snooze fest for like avid horror fans or those Mm. going in expecting just a straight up horror film or those with like desensitized souls. Um, Yeah. Sorry, I was asleep. I was asleep. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I was genuinely horrified throughout. So Alan got his wish and cackled evilly as I shrieked. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Sinclair, what did you pick? Uh, my film is called Angel Heart from 1987, and it stars Mickey Rourke, Robert De Niro, and Lisa Bonet. And oh it's God, directed. I don't know. Never heard of this movie. <gasps> yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's directed by Alan Parker. Alan Parker also directed Midnight Express, Mississippi Burning, and The Life of David Gale. Mm. Yes, Ooh, I like yes. The Life of David Gale. Mm-hmm. Quick synopsis via IMDb. A private investigator is hired by a man who calls himself Louis Cipher to track down a singer named Johnny Favorite, but the investigation takes an unexpected and somber turn. 
this film is a Southern Gothic film. We've been chatting a little oh. bit about Southern Gothic today. It was on my Southern Gothic bucket list. So I thought it was, you know, appropriate for this theme. <laughs> a lot of this takes place in New Orleans. So it has that really hot, sweaty, jazz playing vibe, but mm. with a very eerie, sinister feel lurking underneath it all. Mm. And one of my favorite parts of the Southern Gothic genre is a lot of the films in this genre deal with the occult. Mm -hmm. yeah. So True Detective season one is a good example of this, The Skeleton oh. Key. Those films oh, also... Oh, fucking Skeleton Key. I was going to say yeah. that. I love that movie so much. They also explore the occult and this one has a lot of that in it. Mickey Rourke plays an investigator, Harry Angel. This film's set in 1955 and he's looking for... <laughs> what? What? name Harry Angel he is a yeah. detective named Harry Angel and <laughs> so he's looking for this missing musician called Johnny Favorite and he's hired by Robert also De Niro Johnny <laughs> so he's oh, hired man. by Robert De Niro's character because Johnny Favorite has this unpaid debt with him so he sends Harry out to find him on the search he starts to unfold this mystery and he gets deeper and deeper into the case and he starts to come across people who have been close to Johnny Favorite and all of them are connected to types of voodoo and the occult Mm. Yeah, I have to say too, it's really weird to watch Mickey Rourke in the '80s because it's like watching an entirely different person. Oh yeah, because yeah, his face. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. just it's so weird. He used to have this mix between Bruce Willis and Judd Nelson. Yeah, and it's it is it's like watching a completely different person. I think he's just completely unrecognizable now if you compare the two. So Lisa Bonet is in this, and it's her first feature film credit on IMDb, and it's like really bold to say the least. Okay, <laughs> it's like in the first couple of scenes, her character is basically dancing this ritualistic voodoo dance, and she kills a chicken, and she's like dancing in chicken blood. Oh, oh my. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Okay. And this film also led to controversy for her because she was on the Cosby show at the time. And right. she's naked in this film. There's a oh. lot of nudity in this film. And there's a sex scene that she does. And it's combined with um, this kind of these disturbing visions. It's a blood orgy. It's, I don't know how else to say <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Just call a spade a spade. I don't know it's how to say orgy. it any nicer. There's <laughs> Leave just, it there's to a blood orgy. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. an average Sunday night viewing for you. I, I don't know. The thing is about Angel Heart is I don't actually want to give away anything else about this film because it is a mm. mystery and I don't want to Ooh. spoil it. But Harry Angel is taken down this very dark path and he wrestles with his demons. This is Southern Gothic. This film is very 80s, but it's it's a really interesting journey. And I I thought it was it was a bit campy in parts, also very disturbing. It was a bit of a journey to watch. I really mm. liked it. Mm. I liked it. I liked this more than I thought I would. Okay. Yeah, so the film is Angel Heart from 1987. And if you like Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro, this is a, a good one to watch on a rainy night. It's a cool. lot of fun and, and mysterious and occulty. <laughs> nice. Nice. 
So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we enter the eclectic and Lestrange filmography of an oddball actress who started her career off as a cherub-faced corset queen, but quickly moved from a room with a view to the deathly hollows of Fleet Street. She's an yes. English rose turned goth goddess queen of hearts, and she is more than worthy of wearing the crown. So wake yourselves up after listening to the King's speech and let's head through the looking glass. We can't wait to sing her this actress's praises. It's time to put the versatile career of the one and only Helena Bonham Carter in focus. Yes, <laughs> yeah, wake that. yourself up from that slumber from his king's speech <laughs> oh stop it i loved that movie oh so boring disclaimer <laughs> we're not actually going to talk about king's speech today because no, we all think it's so boring except i don't Emmy. think it's boring <laughs> don't uh, lump me into your criticism of the the king's speech i like that movie okay fine <laughs> helen and i think it's boring okay so <laughs> It's funny because I've actually always had this misconception in my mind that Helena Bonham Carter came from a prestigious theater background in England Mm. because her films are very classic period pieces and there's a lot of Shakespeare. But she actually didn't have any formal acting training when Mm. she got into acting. And it's really interesting because a lot of the films that we're going to discuss and especially the one where it's her on the map film, she's acting alongside very classically trained and highly respected actors with extensive backgrounds in theater. So I was really literal dames. So I was really (laughs) surprised to read that she actually didn't have any formal acting acting training. She's a natural. She's a natural. Yeah. But we did have to decide what was the movie that put her career on the map. And that movie is A Room with a View. It's from Mm. 1985 and it's directed by James Ivory. And it's based on the novel A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. And it also stars Dame Maggie Smith. Dame Judi Dench and Daniel Day-Lewis. And I have to say that this film starts off very Dame heavy right away. <laughs> it's so true. Dame heavy. Dame heavy. I texted you guys. I said, this is Dame heavy. There are two Dames in one dinner scene. A lot. It's, it's, it's so a much. lot. It's a lot of Dames. Yeah, a lot of Dames. Maggie Smith is in this. She's really stretching those chops playing a prudish spinster. <laughs> 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 really something oh different for for Dame Maggie Smith. <laughs> yeah. Well, this film centers around Lucy Honeychurch, played by Helena Bonham Carter. It's in the Edwardian era, which is from 1901 to 1910. Edison, you probably love this. She starts oh. off in Florence, Italy, with her chaperone, Maggie Smith, who's pursing her lips as she oh goes along. And she comes across George, played by Julian Sands, who's a very free-spirited, philosophical, handsome fellow. And there's a little spark between them, but they end up going their separate ways. I watched this movie last night. I have been sick for the last four days. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly... Not COVID. <laughs> not COVID. That's right. Yes, I got the test back. Not COVID. <laughs> this is exactly what I needed to soothe my soul. I needed all of this beauty and gentility. <laughs> yes. And, and wit and sophistication. Uh, the fun thing about this movie, too, is it's unintentionally hilarious the characters are just so fully developed and well acted and they're funny without being intentionally funny they're just they're Mm. so deep into their characters like Daniel Day-Lewis is in this he plays Cecil who is this very rigid bookworm and he's 
hysterical. He is absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Yes. All the characters are over the top in their own way. They're so stressed about everything. And there's a bit of a love triangle going on here as well. But, you know, I always find movies like this to be a bit stressful because it's hard to watch women in this time being so restricted. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Helena Bonacarter is great in this because she asserts herself a lot while living in this mm-hmm. time where things were, were very restricted. And she has that natural wit and sass and intellect to be able to pull a character like this off and still be really charming. It's what was, was missing in Emma. Oh, the God, one 100%. we recently watched. And yeah. what I think is really cool about watching this character too is that we look at this character and see it's so restrictive and blah, 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 blah. But that character does not feel restricted. Mm -hmm. She feels totally empowered. She says exactly what she thinks when she means to. She's actually quite commanding almost. Yeah. And she has this cherub face, this youthful (laughs) cherub face, but her eyes are quite dark. You can kind of see that bubbling under the surface. She's enigmatic, Helena Bonham Carter. You can see the inner workings of some mystery. She's so compelling. Yeah. I loved her in this. Julian Sands is in this. He plays George, her, you know, main love interest. And I have to tell you that I cannot watch Julian Sands without seeing Boxing Helena. I've talked about Boxing Helena. Yeah, that was on. That's on your weird blog. Yeah, so a little shout out to my weird blog, a little uh, shame, shameless uh, plug. <laughs> if you want to read about Julian Sands in a really weird movie called Boxing Helena, you can uh, read about it on my weird blog. It's called This Just Got Weird. Movies not suited for uh, dinner conversation. <laughs> and it's on our website. And it's a really weird movie and uh, a lot of fun. One of the things that is most striking about this film is how it just lets you luxuriate in the natural setting and in the beauty of the Mm. natural landscape and the scenery. Those shots where they're in the fields with the tall, tall flowers in Florence are absolutely, utterly breathtaking. There's this purely comical scene where the... (laughs) where the men all, like, go bathe together in a pond in the woods, (laughs) naked. And run and chase and frolic each other and splash water and run <laughs> run and chase each other around and wrestle. And I'm like, this is the gayest shit I have ever seen. <laughs> Come on, Edwardian. Yeah, um, the Edwardian era. <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful, like breathtaking, breathtaking mm-hmm. cinematography in this film. So Helena Bonham Carter, she actually did more films that were adapted from E.M. Forster novels. She did one called Where Angels Fear to Tread and also Howard's End. And she kind of got this stereotype of being a corset queen. So she did a lot of films that were more period pieces at this time, which might lead us to another one that she did. That's one of her big three (laughs) that Helen watched. We had to narrow down three of Helena Bonham Carter's movies that define her career. And Helen, you're the first one. Excellent. Okay, first on the big three, The Wings of the Dove from 1997, directed by Ian Softley, based on the 1902 novel of the same name, written by Henry James. This is the description, courtesy of IMDb. An impoverished woman who has been forced to choose between her privileged life with her wealthy aunt and 
her journalist lover befriends an American heiress. When she discovers the heiress is attracted to her own lover and is dying, she sees a chance to have the privileged life she cannot give up and the lover she cannot live without. Mm. Saucy. This mm-hmm. is a saucy story. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved this movie. Yeah, this had Helen written yes. all over it. Oh my God, for totally. Sure. And I was sort of like, I don't know, maybe not in the mood for a period piece. And I was like, ugh, I have to watch this stuffy movie. And it's not stuffy at all. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's so good. So first off, I will talk about Helena Bonham Carter because she is exceptional in this film. Hmm. Um, I really am only familiar with her in Tim Burton films or as Bellatrix in the Harry Potter series. Hmm. I haven't seen a lot of her stuff before those movies. Like this whole and- era. Yeah, and she's such a great actress. Yeah. she Her face tells a lot of stories. She can be loving, playful, and conniving all at once in this film. And she's actually doing quite a despicable thing. But at no point do you, like, fault her or despise her, mm-hmm. amazingly. Like, her performance is that good. The other thing I love about this is Alison Elliott, who plays Millie, is such a gem, and I do not understand how she didn't become a star. It's quite strange. Yeah, there's a lot from the 80s and, and 90s that you'll see in films that didn't quite go anywhere. Like, I've never heard of her before. I'd never seen her face before, and her she's beautiful mm-hmm. and wonderful in this film. And I'm like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. And the third thing in this film that just made me fall in love is the costuming by Sandy Powell. Oh my God. Sandy Powell. Yes. Unbelievable. I wanted every single outfit in this film. Mm. It's stunning. It's, you know, and I think part of it is that it's the same era as Titanic. So it was giving Mm. me like vibes of Titanic, obviously, but there's tons of empire waists with those beautiful flowy gowns, a lot of like flowy shawls. Like there's there's this one scene where Helena, Helena Bonham's Carter, Carter's character is wearing this velvet shawl with a peacock embroidered on the back. (laughs) It's just amazing. And lastly, a lot of the movie is set in Venice. And so there's beautiful, beautiful footage of Venice in this movie. That's just, it is a dream. All in all, great film. And it was um, Helena Bonham Carter's first Oscar nomination. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And one thing I will say is she has been nominated collectively of Golden Globes, Emmys, and Oscars. She's had 14 nominations over all three of those awards ceremonies and has not won a single award. Overdue. Yeah. Uh, What is number two? Okay, number two is none other than Fight Club. 1999, Uh, directed by David Fincher. (laughs) Goodbye, Corset Queen. (laughs) Goodbye, Corset Queen. Yeah. It's so interesting (laughs) to see how her career changes at this point. This is 1999, Fight Club. It's based on Fight Club, written by Chuck Palahniuk. And she plays Marla Singer, who is one of my favorite movie characters of all time. Marla is high, high, high up there. We know the story of Fight Club. Edward Norton plays a man living a very mundane life who meets Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, who moonlights as a soap maker slash anarchist. We meet Marla, who has a wonderful, iconic entrance to a scene. It's just one of my favorites. She walks into a testicular cancer support group and (laughs) she's wearing a big brimmed black hat and dark sunglasses and puffing on a cigarette and that little black dress. And Edward Norton's character, the narrator says, this was my vacation and she ruined everything. (laughs) And 
It's just a great such entrance. a great, great entrance. This role was actually supposed to go to Janine Garofalo, hmm. which would have been interesting. Whoa. And they were also considering Courtney Love because Courtney Love was hmm. dating Edward Norton at the time. I can I can see Courtney Love more than Janine Garofalo. I actually can totally see Courtney Love. That's interesting. Yeah. But David Fincher ended up going with Helena Bonham Carter. He really liked her performance in The Wings of the Dove. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I thought was quite interesting is that Helena Bonham Carter wanted Marla Singer's makeup to look like she didn't really try. She didn't think Marla would really try to have perfect makeup. So she asked her makeup artist to do her makeup with her left hand. Oh. Yeah. I mean, That's yeah, cool. this is a character who goes to support groups for free coffee and then walks into a laundromat, steals people's clothes, and then goes and sells them at a thrift store. So <laughs> she's not spending too much time on her makeup. She also she's has... Slytherin. She is, yes, she's a sli- Slytherin for sure. <laughs> Smug girl. <laughs> yeah, she has some epic lines in this film. One of the lines in the book is, oh, Tyler, I want your abortion. But 20th Century Fox executives said that was too much. You need to change it. So David Fincher Mm. basically said, "Okay, but whatever line I change it to has to stay in the film. And they agreed. And then the line ended up being changed to I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Yeah. And when the executives were like, no, no way, you're not doing that. He was kind of like a deal's a deal. And that's actually one of the best moments in the film. One of the most (laughs) memorable lines. That's for sure. Yeah. But this has always been one of my favorite roles of hers. She just, she had the right stuff for this one. It was this role, I think, that really propelled her into the darker, edgier films. And this movie is a, it's a cult favorite. It didn't do well when it first came out, but it gained its audience. And part of that is because the characters are so iconic and Marla is one of those characters. So I I love this movie. Yeah. And I think it also was responsible. It was big for her because it was, it shredded that image. Now she did Frank, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as well. She had yeah. played with the dark side. Yeah. But this really gave her like an edge to her yeah. persona. And it was modern. It was modern. Yes. Exactly. You know? Okay, Edison, what's number three? The third one in the big three is 2007's Sweeney Todd, the demon barber <laughs> of Fleet Street. Directed by her then-husband, Tim Burton, Sweeney Todd stars Johnny Depp in the titular role and Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett. She worked a lot with Tim Burton. Like you said, Helen, you know her mostly from that. So we could have, mm-hmm. and all of those films have been largely successful. I feel like we could have picked any of them. It's just that this is my favorite. And yeah. And I've my least film. favorite. <laughs> what? I know I hated Sweeney Todd. I'm sorry. How? <laughs> oh, God. Me and these musicals. I just, I can't. Anyway. Okay, well, that's right, on you, girl, because this, this movie is <laughs> f- fucking fantastic. <laughs> this is a revenge movie. Straight up classic. Mm. Benjamin Barker mm. is a barber living with his beautiful wife and their beautiful daughter, but the wickedly evil Judge Turpin, played by the sensationally sinister Alan Rickman, has eyes for the daughter. So he uses his influence and power to get Barker thrown in jail, his wife thrown to the streets, and then takes the daughter as his ward and future lover, he hopes. Well, Benjamin Barker gets out of jail, changes his identity to Sweeney Todd, and comes back to London with nothing on his mind but getting sweet, sweet revenge on the judge. 
This is where he meets Mrs. Lovett, who owns a pie shop where she makes the worst pies in London. <laughs> Forgive me for that. She's She always remembered him. She lets him move in above her shop and set up his barber shop there. And then they make a devilish partnership out of murdering people in his barber shop and baking them into her pies, which <laughs> turns her shop into a bustling business and the most popular joint in town. <laughs> and this Fucked is plot. I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's a musical yeah. based off the Sondheim mm-hmm. stage musical, the same name. So come on. Okay. Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett in this is just wonderful. The Worst Pies in London song she is not a great singer, but she is such a fantastic performer that it does not matter. That song is so fun. It's so fast. And she's so mm. kind of kooky and comedic. And it's like her singing about, oh, dear, we make the worst pies in London. I still sing the final long, times is hard, times is hard. I've been singing oh, that yeah, you since say that the all fucking the time. Goddamn- yeah, because we've been in lockdown in a goddamn pandemic, honey. I've been singing it since March. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's wonderful in this, and she's batshit crazy and evil, but but like not. And this is what's so great about that character. She's just like taken advantage of and mm. kind of good. You can see her good side, but she's, you know, she's still baking dead people in her pies. So she's awful. <laughs> But yeah, this movie, I don't, I'm sorry, Sinclair, you're wrong. Uh, it's just really good. It was nominated for three Oscars. It won for Best Achievement in Art Direction, which is absolutely deserved. The set design, the production design, the costuming in this film, just absolutely stunning. Colleen Atwood was also nominated for Costume Design. And Johnny Depp was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. He was great in this film as well. It was a success. It made $154 million, which is really good for an R-rated musical. So yes, Sweeney Todd, that's the the last one on her big three. Alrighty. Uh, Sinclair, what is Helena Bonham Carter's hidden gem? Well, I actually found a film called 55 Steps. It's from 2017. It's directed by Billy August, and it stars Helena Bonham Carter and Hilary Swank. So an interesting combo there. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. This film is based on the true story of a woman named Eleanor Reese, who is played by Helena Bonham Carter, who in the late 80s was a psychiatric patient who hired a patient's rights lawyer, played by Hilary Swank, to represent her in a class action lawsuit regarding involuntary treatments using antipsychotic drugs. Whoa. Yeah, it was. Okay. It's, yeah, it's a lot. She was basically a woman with schizophrenia, and she felt that uh, she and other patients had the right to be a part of the conversation of what drugs they were being given and how much mm. they were being given, and not being treated as a being who can't make any decisions about their own health and and treatment. This flew under the radar, and it's a bit too bad because it definitely shines a light on an issue that I don't think gets a lot of attention. How people with these kind of disorders are treated and viewed and it was a movement that started Mm. the conversation about improving the relationship between these types of patients and doctors and them having an active say yeah it's (laughs) really brought the mood down i'm sorry but (laughs) it's a really (laughs) it's a really yeah it's a really interesting film and i really miss seeing hillary swank she plays this lawyer and she's wonderful and 
Helena Bonham Carter plays this woman with schizophrenia and she's so great and she has enough heart, but she's also very unpredictable and she just acts with this reckless abandon. Yeah, it didn't get much, uh, much attention. I actually just saw it on her filmography and I thought, wow, that sounds like kind of an important story. I should watch this film and I actually learned a lot. Huh, cool. Nice. Oh, that brought the mood down. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, how I'm I just finished talking about a film about baking humans into pies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the that's the interesting thing about her filmography. Helena Bonham mm. Carter. I mean, it really is it's really versatile. Yeah. Yeah. And different genres. I, I don't think I've ever seen her though in a straight comedy. But she also infuses so much comedy into her performances. Well, even that... Ocean's yeah. Eight. Remember Ocean's Eight? Oh yes. Yeah. Not a great movie, but she's really great as the eccentric fashion designer. Yes, absolutely. True. Yeah, yeah that's true. I mean, speaking of Edison, I, I guess I'm curious <laughs> about what her pop culture moment might be. That was a really convenient segue, Miss Sinclair. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> because I would say that Helena Bottom Carter, her pop culture moment is probably her wonderfully idiosyncratic fashion sense. Hmm. Yeah. She is just so captivating all the time, bold with her choices. She gives zero fucks. (laughs) Everyone loves her for it. She loves a Vivian Westwood corseted, gothic-looking gown with her hair up. She loves to wear tartan. Mm -hmm. She loves to be sexy and sensual. She's gothic, but she's also just glamour. In 2019, she was honored with the Harper's Bazaar British Icon Award. What was kind of neat was they were talking to her and she said in an interview that she never really felt connected to the English style, which Mm -hmm. might come as a surprise considering all of the films that we just discussed where she came into her fame in Hollywood playing this like English corset queen. But she said her mother's half French and half Spanish and she was much more conscious of that side of the family. She thought English roses were supposed to be blonde and blue eyed. I think what's interesting about that is there's a certain like sensuality that she's connecting Mm -hmm. to and that European sensibility that made her performances so compelling in those earlier films that she just carries with her and that also informs her fashion sense because Mm -hmm. Helena Bonham Carter is sexy. As hell. Yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, when you're talking about that, Edison, I feel like that's what makes her work in those roles because she's not your conventional English rose, you know? Exactly. She's got a dark side. It, it's almost like she's playing against type, but not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's something, there's a streak in there that's different. Yeah. Yes. So I think Helena's incomparable style, it is her pop culture moment. Mm-hmm. Love that. Okay, Helen. What's up and coming? Mm. Okay. Well, there were two things on her IMDb. Uh, One is an animated film called The Land of Sometimes. Who cares? Not us. And the (laughs) other. (laughs) Wait, what is it? It's like a kid's movie. It's a kid's movie. She's like doing voiceover. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, (laughs) The other is quite intriguing. It's. In development, so there wasn't a whole lot of information, but it's called St. Maisie, and it's based off of a novel of the same name by Jamie Attenberg, and it is the story of Maisie Gordon Philly, an unconventional activist for the homeless in New York during the 1940s. Mm. Oh. That sounds very interesting to me. 
Okay, so right. So she doesn't have a ton of things up and coming. But the thing about Helena Bonham Carter is she's an icon. She's a movie star. (laughs) (laughs) She is. She is that as well. But also, I mean... You know, we started this talking about her as a young, 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 innocent girl, 19 years old, acting mm. with no acting experience opposite a bunch of dames. And the reality is, there's no doubt that Helena Bonham Carter is also going to be a dame at some point, for mm. sure. Mm-hmm. She's an icon yeah, in the industry. <laughs> She's an English yeah. icon. She'll be making quality film for as long as she wants to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, guys, there's only one way to end this in focus, Helena Bonham Carter. And that's playing a fun little game of marry, fuck, kill with her filmography. Edison, why don't you start us off? What film do you want to marry? I'm going to marry Harry Potter. Uh, It could be any one of them, really. Hmm. Bellatrix, and it's because Bellatrix Lestrange is a brilliant villain. It is a small Oh, she's so good. She's my favorite. Well, exactly. Like, it's not a big <laughs> role, but she's actually more frightening and evil than Voldemort. And I agree. I just think it's one, easily one of her most iconic roles. And with almost any other actress, it could have just kind of been a bit of a throwaway role. But she is so perfect and commands it so much that I'm just in love with it. Even though mm. she said it would not be a happy marriage. I mean, she'd kill me. But, it, <laughs> I, you know, I, it'd be worth it. Sinclair? Mm. I'm gonna marry Big Fish. Oh, it's oh my, God, it's, I know. it's honestly my one of my favorite Tim Burton films. I cry every time I watch it. Oh. Just the scene at the end where he's you know carrying his father out into the water. It just oh, honestly, just waterworks every time. And she's just the coolest witch. We've had this conversation before. Yeah. You guys picked uh, Bellatrix for your favorite witch, and then I I picked the witch in Big Fish. Yeah. She mm-hmm. has that all seeing eye. Yeah, where they look into her eye and 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 can see how they're going to die. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry man. that this marriage went really dark. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> Typical. But I love this film. I could watch it over and over again. I think it is just so whimsical and poignant and and lovely. Hmm. Me too. And it also is the biggest pick me up. Whenever I'm feeling like really down or like very very sick or I just feeling shitty about whatever. I basically imagine that scene from Big Fish where all of the people from this person's life visit the funeral. And I think, okay, imagine my own death. Imagine Mm. my own funeral and all of the people that I've met with and connected with in my life, like coming and what they would say about me. And oh no, Sinclair's about to cry. I could start crying right now. Like (laughs) Big Fish just really does it. Yeah, it's it's so powerful. It's about... It's about the power of being a storyteller. Like Mm. it's it's just such a good film. Mm -hmm. So good. All right, Helen. Okay, well, I also picked Harry Potter, but I did pick a specific film, um, Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows, number one. Mm -hmm. So the second last film, Penultimate, I believe is what it's called. This is probably my favorite of the movies because it's so dark and creepy. Yes. And I'm so obsessed with Bellatrix. She's my favorite character in Harry Potter. I've wanted to dress up as her for Halloween like my whole life and I've never done it. Maybe I'll just do it this year by myself in my apartment. I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, Halloween's not going to be a thing. I, I like the dark and I like the witchy and uh, I am also a Slytherin. So uh, yeah, I would, I'd be marrying uh, Bellatrix. <sighs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? Okay, well, as I said, I've been sick all week. So I'm feeling more of a, like, romantic, playful sexual vibe right now rather than, like, the raw <laughs> kernel. 
Uh, so I'm <laughs> I'm gonna have to fuck Room with a View just for that right. ludicrously homoerotic bathing scene. I mean, yeah. seriously. <laughs> as soon as that scene came on, I was like, ah, oh, Edison's gonna like this one. What a delightfully joyful romp it would be. <laughs> yeah. So Claire? I'm going to fuck Fight Club. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a sexy film. <laughs> yeah. And enough said. Okay, Helen. <laughs> um, Yeah, I'm kind of, Addison and I are on the same page this week. I'm going to fuck The Wings of the Dove. For a, you know, period piece, this is, it is actually quite sexy and she's, she does full frontal nudity in this movie. I forgot to mention mm. that before. But there's a lot of sexy, like, forbidden love vibes going on and, like, uh, hidden love. And there is a love triangle happening here. So it is actually quite a sexy film. And yes, that is what I'm fucking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Edison, you have to kill one. I'm going to kill Terminator Salvation. She's yeah. in that? Okay. Yes. You won't even remember that she's in it. It's a small little role. <laughs> it's definitely not it. her fault. It's just a bad film. And sorry, it's another mm. Sam Worthington dud. And y'all, if you want to hear more about him, become a Patreon member and listen to mm. our very fair and generous discussion in the 2000s episode. <laughs> that's the thing is, I don't I don't know if anybody will want to hear more about him. Well, so just join our Patreon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Who? <laughs> Sinclair, what are you going to kill? Oh, Sweeney Todd. Ah! No, you're absolutely not. Do you know why? Because he's going to kill you first and bake you into a damn yeah, pie. Yeah, true. Good luck. No, I'm killing Sweeney Todd. I've I've seen it once and I just, I cannot with these musicals. I, I, oh, wow. You're such no. a hater. You're on my yeah. hit list. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, Helen, you got to kill one. Easy peasy. I'm killing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Blasphemous remake. Blasphemous. Mm. Pretty bad. Yeah. The original is amazing. And Gene Wilder is the only Willy Wonka. Thank mm. you very much. Yeah. Johnny Depp can get out of here with that weird makeup and hair. I'm not about it. <laughs> get, um, get right out of here. You get, get out, out of here. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm killing Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. No, thank you. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our website, talkmovietomepodcast.com, and become a Patreon member. We will be posting special episodes to our Patreon. If you want to be able to listen to those, please become a member. Go to www.patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Oh, sir, times is hard. <laughs> Ugh. You can't sing, Sinclair, because you're dead and baked into a pie. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Tasty.